What attracted you to Christ? If you can remember back when uh, Christ became attractive to you, what was it that drew you to him? Was it the promise of a better job or a better marriage, better life, easier life? You know, although if you've been here a while, you know that that's not what we preach um, when it comes to the gospel, but there is an, a, an amazing effect on your employment uh, when you embrace the gospel. It makes you a better employee. And so you might actually get a, a more enjoyable experience out of your job because you come to Christ. And the same effect holds true in a marriage, right? So some... some uh, ill-meaning TV evangelists might promise you a better marriage if you'll just come to Jesus, it actually might be true because you'll become a better spouse. And if you become a better spouse, I guarantee you your marriage will improve. And on and on it goes. So we have these promises that, that we resist um, from our place here at Sun Valley when it comes to the gospel. Um, but what is it that drew you to Christ? Maybe it was a fear of eternal punishment. Is that the case for you? It's the case for a lot of people. Um, maybe on a more winsome note, maybe it was the promise of forgiveness that drew you to Christ. That, that God would actually forgive your sins and forget them. Did that, did that draw you to Christ? Or um, maybe freedom from the power of sin in your life? You were tired of that constant struggle and you heard that there was one who could help you with that. And so you came? Was that, was that why you came to Christ? Um, maybe you came because you heard that there was a promise of, of fulfillment and peace and joy and happiness. That draws many to Christ. He's a winsome Savior. Um, this is what's promised in Psalm 119 um, is happiness you know, so we've, we've worked our way through um, the first few verses of Psalm 119, and you can see in the first two verses there, it begins with making a promise about happiness. And I don't think there's anybody who would turn away on a, a bigger dose of happiness, right? No one's going to say, well, I'm not interested in that. Um, no, we all, we all would embrace that. We'd all, I think, come running to that and wait in line for that if necessary. Uh, is this promise of happiness. We have uh, been in this first stanza, the first eight verses of this great psalm, Psalm 119, for a few weeks now, and it is called the Aleph stanza because it's, the title is the um, letter of the Hebrew alphabet, the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet, Aleph. And each stanza is titled by another Hebrew letter all the way through the entire Hebrew alphabet. And so we are in the middle of this first one, and you might have been tempted to conclude after reading up to this point that happiness is really out of reach for you. Uh, it's a reasonable response because of what it says is the route to happiness, right? It has to do with being blameless. Is that you? Any blameless people here? Uh, anybody who walks consistently with Christ day in and day out, hour in and hour, minute in and minute out? No, of course not. So you might, you might be like me and say, well, sure, happiness is for those who are perfect. It's not me. And right when you start thinking that way, you get to verse 5. 
And verse 5 brings us some hope, right? Because the psalmist, the author here, inspired by the Holy Spirit, says, oh, that my way would be steadfast. Oh, that I would be blameless. And so you think, wait a minute. This is, this is a cry of this man's heart that, that he, even he, would walk faithfully with Christ. Because he isn't. <laughs> and he wants happiness. And he knows where to find it. The Apostle Paul evidently struggled with the same thing in Romans 7. In fact, every Christian struggles with this. We know what we should be doing. We know what God expects. And yet... We find ourselves failing more often than not. It's what J.I. Packard called spiritual realism. Knowing what's right, but acknowledging you can't do it. Um, too much failure, too much sin, even for the best of us Christians, to really, truly be blameless. But does that does spiritual realism negate the first few verses of Psalm 119? Is it okay for a Christian to just say, well, I just can't obey consistently. That's how it is. That's how it's going to be. So let's just acknowledge that, embrace it, and move on as sinful Christians. That hopefully isn't your response to the commands to obedience. We must, I think, like the psalmist does here, especially in verses 5 through 8, push beyond the honesty of spiritual realism and make progress towards a more faithful obedience. We cannot remain content at our current level of obedience. I hope you are not there. I think we must pursue a godly discontent with our current level of obedience. So if you're going to be discontent about something in life, if you are naturally discontent, aim that towards your obedience. I am not content with my current level of obedience. That is a godly thing to think and say. How do we do this? How are we going to acknowledge our struggle with sin, pursue a deeper level uh, of obedience, and at the same time maintain happiness? Experience happiness. Well, I want to try to explain this to you today. And I want to give you a, a summary statement that will hopefully wrap this up in, in something that you can hang on to. That the happy and growing Christian will demonstrate the presence of God in their life by consistent obedience. All right? Let me, let me say that again. The happy and growing Christian will demonstrate the presence of God in their life by consistent obedience that's based on the goodness of God and our dependence on him. You got that? That's what I'm going to try to explain to you today. The happy and growing Christian will demonstrate the presence of God in their life by consistent obedience based on the goodness of God and a dependence on him. Verses 6 through 8, which, are, which is our focus today, reveals three characteristics of this kind of a Christian, this kind of a follower of Christ. And I've written these characteristics in the form of resolutions so that you would have an objective to pursue. The first characteristic or resolution of a happy, growing Christian is found in verse 6. 
It says this, Then I shall not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. And I've written the resolution like this, I will demonstrate the presence of God in my life. That has to do with shame or not as we pursue God. And I want to explain this by taking you to verse 31 in this same chapter. Look at verse 31. What's it say? I cling to your testimonies, O Lord. Let me not be put to shame. Then verse 80. Flip over to that. My, may my heart be blameless in your statutes that I may not be put to shame. So there is a direct connection between obedience. There's a direct connection between avoiding shame and obedience. Between being obedient and avoiding shame. Someone who is shamed is the one who says one thing and does another, right? You say one thing, but you do another. Christians are put to shame when they claim Christ and live like they don't know him. Do you know any Christians like that? Are you one of them? I know that I feel a sense of shame when my actions or thoughts do not reflect the spirit of Christ that I claim dwells in me. I'm one of them. But you know what? This is probably the most common complaint of the world, isn't it? And you call yourself a Christian. You ever heard that? Yeah? I'm not going to go to that church. It's full of hypocrites. This is the complaint that we must deal with, right? In the church, in the Christian life. In the Old Testament, Israel practiced this type of behavior. Israel's reputation made a mockery of God, and the nations laughed at God because of the behavior of the Israelites. And this is what the psalmist wants to avoid. This is what the Holy Spirit wants us to avoid. The desire of the psalmist's heart, the yearning of his heart, oh, that my ways would be steadfast, verse 5, is to obediently follow Christ's commands so as not to be put to shame. This is, this is what he's after here. I will demonstrate the presence of God in my life First off, by not having selective obedience. Look what the verse says. Verse 6. I will not be put to shame having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. If you're one who is easily selective in your obedience, circle the word all. All your commandments. Not just the comfortable ones. We cannot pick and choose our way through God's commands. Which ones we're going to obey, which ones we're going to ignore. No, God is the one who decides what he commanded. And we, on the other hand, respond to his commands by obedience to all of them is the point. We need to strive for a Christianity that's fixed on all of his commands. How many times do we catch ourselves being selective in our obedience? Have you ever discovered this in your life? It's very interesting. Uh, we who, who claim Christ... If we're on a sports team, we all do what the coach says. If we're in the army, we all obey our commanding officer. If we're in the club, we do our best to do what the club expects. But when it comes to Christianity, eh, we'll decide what we want to decide. We'll do what we want to do. Why do we treat participation in the family of God any differently than we would with any club that we're in? Why do we feel that we can get away with partial obedience? How do you think it would fly if you told your sergeant that you really like being in the army, you just aren't feeling the 5 a.m. run thing? I'm, I'm not, I like the army, I just don't like the running. It wouldn't go too well. 
Is our response to the commands of God uh, selective because we know that God is merciful after all? Or is it because he's so remote, I'm not sure I ever encounter him? Or is it because we really don't think it's all that serious? What's behind our selective obedience? The word all in verse 6 indicates that all of God's commands are of equal authority. There isn't one more important than the other in God's eyes. Jesus seemed to agree with this in Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount. He said this, if you ignore the least of the commandments and teach others to do the same, you'll be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus was concerned with universal obedience to all of God's commands, not picking and choosing. If we want to be happy growing Christians, we cannot have selective obedience. Do you remember the story of Saul in 1 Samuel chapter 15? God records this story about King Saul's selective obedience to teach us a very important lesson. God commanded that Israel go in and wipe out the Amalekites because of their horrendous and grievous sin. And he said, wipe them all out, everything. And don't keep any of the spoil. Destroy it all. And of course, you know the story. King Saul didn't do that. He spared the king of the Amalekites. And he allowed the people to keep the spoil. And then Samuel shows up. Just when you're having fun, the religious guy has to show up. It's always the case, isn't it? This is what happened. Saul, he, Saul was confronted by Samuel, and Samuel said, Hey, I killed them all but one. What are you complaining about? There's only one left, and this is the guy right here. What's the big deal? And as far as the spoil that the people are keeping, they're going to offer that to God, Samuel, so you should be happy with that. That was, that was Saul's response to the command of God. Selective obedience. How precise does Saul need to be anyways? I mean, one? But that one revealed his unsound heart and cost him his throne, brought God's displeasure, and ultimately cost Sam, Saul his life. And friends, this story in, in 1 Samuel 15 is a classic example of selective obedience and how we try to justify it. When Samuel confronted Saul about this disobedience, he tried to just minimize his sin by saying, it's just one, it's just a small little sin. And then he, and then he threw Israel under the bus by saying, did you notice these, these people, you know, they, they kept all the spoil. All I did was spare one, but they kept all the gold and silver and everything else. Samuel, you should be concerned about those guys. My sin's so small. How often do we catch ourselves doing that kind of thing? We try to minimize our sin and failure by pointing out the obvious sins of others. If we can divert attention from our sin to the obvious sins of those people, those drunkards, those addicts, those perverts, those prostitutes, man, look at how evil they are, we might be able to deflect people's attention, especially God's, long enough to get out of the room. At least so we can feel better about ourselves. Another way we minimize particular sins in our lives, even though they're small, is by highlighting some other area of good or, or spiritual accomplishment. You ever notice that? I don't give like God commands me to give, but I really serve well. Let's talk about how well I serve. I'm here all the time. I serve I, night and day. I'm, 
And so we highlight some area where we think we're really doing well, selective obedience, to minimize an area where we're not doing so well. And we see Saul doing this very thing. And how did Samuel respond to this? Oh, I guess you're right, Saul. You know, it's only a small thing. Let's, let's, see what, let's see if we can get away with it. No, listen to what Samuel said. He said this to Saul, what is more pleasing to the Lord? Your burnt offerings and sacrifices or your obedience to his voice? And he's sitting there, picture this old priest with finger in Saul's chest saying, listen, obedience is better than sacrifice and submission is better than offering of fatter rams. God could care less about what you planned to do with the things you were supposed to give to him and you didn't. God's concerned with our obedience, universal obedience. What a lesson for us in this day. And if you sit here and you process this important truth, you, something might dawn on you. Like, why did God treat Saul's sin so much differently than David's sin? Both were kings. Both were leaders of the people. Saul was roundly condemned David was forgiven. David's sin was monstrous compared to Saul's little itty-bitty sin. I mean, if there was a scale out here, it would be tipped big time in the favor of Saul. But David received forgiveness and mercy. Saul, condemnation. What's going on here, God? Isn't God fair? Friends, listen to this critically important spiritual principle. It's the heart behind the sin that God is after. God knows you're going to sin. You know you're going to sin. Everybody in this room knows that we're going to sin. That's not the issue. The issue is how do you respond to that sin? That's what God is concerned with. David never minimized his sin with Bathsheba. He acknowledged it. Saul tried not only to minimize his sin, he tried to hide it. He tried to deflect responsibility. He tried to throw others under the bus to get out of the pressure of responsibility. And in this comparison between King David and King Saul is really good news for us who are habitual sinners. The good news is how we respond to our sin is what God is concerned with. Look how David responded to his sin. And keep in mind how Saul responded. David recorded his response in Psalm 51, verse 17. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Humble, acknowledgement, and pursuit of the grace of God offered in the sacrifice. Do you see the massive difference between Saul and David's response to sin? I don't need to tell you whose model to follow. This response, this godly response to sin, must include knowing and embracing the only satisfaction for sin, and that's found in Christ, isn't it? Isn't that the only hope we have? Why, why would we think that pointing out someone else's sin is going to distract God. It doesn't. We just read this this morning in our, in our liturgy. 
in, in 1 John, he is our propitiation. He is the satisfaction for our sin. And in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 30, Paul says something similar. And because of God, you are in Christ Jesus. And Jesus is the one who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, friends. Run to Christ with your sin. Don't hide it. You're not hiding it from anybody, but maybe your own, your own perception. Everybody around you knows you sin. God knows you sin. The only one who thinks you're getting away with it is you. Or me. See, David knew that there was nothing in him that was acceptable to God or anything that he could do to atone for his sin. This is why he claimed the cleansing power of the blood of the sacrifice. David humbly raced to the mercy and grace of God for help. David appropriated God's means of dealing with his sin. Saul tried to minimize it. Saul tried to hide it. Saul tried to cast it on others. Friends, if we're going to be happy, growing Christians... We must demonstrate the presence of God in our lives by not practicing selective obedience. But when we fail, we appropriate God's ordained means of dealing with sin, which is humbly coming to Christ for forgiveness. But it also means this, if you want to round out everything we see in verse 6. If we're going to be happy and growing Christians, we must demonstrate the presence of God in our lives by not having selective obedience, but by having diligent obedience. Notice he says, I've got my eyes fixed on all his commandments. They're fixed there. Nothing's getting past me. I can see it clearly. I'm pursuing it with all my heart. What, what the psalmist means here is an intentional and diligence in daily living, being circumspect in our daily lives and choices, actions, and thoughts. It means paying close attention to what God has said and reflecting on our lives based on what he has said. It's a diligent obedience, being fixed on it. We all experience being fixed on things. Uh, if you've ever been in... Um, a fender bender at a stoplight or stop sign, it's because whoever was responsible for the accident was fixed on something they shouldn't have been. They're looking at someone walking down the sidewalk or taking a drink from their coffee or texting. They're fixing their eyes on something other than the road and they get in an accident. That's a negative illustration of being fixed. Uh, let me give you a positive one. Uh, and this is from Psalm 123, verse 2. Behold, as a servant's eyes look to the hand of the master, fixed on the hands of the master, waiting for the direction from their master. As the eyes of the maidservant has her uh, eyes fixed on the hand of her mistress, so I, our, our eyes are fixed on the Lord our God. Till he has mercy on us. A few years back, I was training uh, my Labrador, Rennie, to hunt or he was training me, I can't remember, I'm not sure which one it was. Uh, he was a better hunter than I was, but uh, I, I took credit for it. Uh, he's, he's got this breeding that makes him a really good hunter, or he was a good hunter. He's in doggy heaven now, I think, or something like that. But he was a great hunter, and I was trying to teach him to uh, look for the directions of my hands, 
the direction of my hands to let him know where the bird was. So I shoot a bird, it goes down, he doesn't see it. What happened after Rennie was ready for hunting is he would stop. He would turn around and look at me and go, where'd it go? In dog language, of course. And I would point with my hands. I just, I wouldn't point, I'd hold it up left or up right and then go back or, and, and, or up, you know, tell him to go backwards, left or right, up or down, based on my hand signals. And he understood it, and he got it, and he did it. You know, we didn't lose birds because he knew hand motions, hand directions, just like we should know God's directions, right? You look back in a time of confusion, where is it? What's, what am I supposed to be doing? God's word, back and to your right, up here and to your left. This is... This is how we should be responding to God, having our eyes fixed on his commandments. Our eyes fixed on all of God's commandments means that we don't treat God's commands as a smorgasbord, picking and choosing our way through them. But it also carries the idea of not being influenced by our own standards, our own perspective. And I think this is even more dangerous for the Christian. Our eyes are fixed on God's commands, God's specific standards, not whether or not we like those things. This is how we need to think about it. I've spoken to many who seem to be surprised when I tell them that if you're attending a church that's teaching the Word of God, you're, that's teaching it faithfully at least, you're going to be regularly confronted with truth that is uncomfortable. A truth that, that runs across your grain. And from time to time, you're not going to like what you hear. And actually, believe it or not, I pray that there are things that you dislike about what I say to, to genuinely demonstrate to me that I'm actually teaching the Word of God. You should regularly feel a level of discomfort when the Bible is being taught. If we are being renewed day by day by the Word of God, by the Spirit of God, applying the Word of God, what does that mean except the Holy Spirit takes the Word and conforms us to it? Can you picture in your mind being conformed to something by force? It doesn't sound comfortable. This is what we're talking about here. It requires confrontation of our personal opinions and practices, shaping and forming and filing and sanding, and that is uncomfortable. And I think this is huge in the Christian life. I think it's one of the largest challenges that we face as contemporary Christians. We are inundated by worldly opinions about anything and everything, from how to raise our kids, how we should spend our money, how we should spend our time, how, what kind of entertainment we should participate in, uh, even how we're going to spend our retirement years. The world has an opinion on all that stuff. And sadly, the world's opinions will dovetail very naturally with your own because you are in the world. You live here. And so these things will sound reasonable. You should save up as much as your money and spend it all on yourself until you die. I made it. I should be able to spend it. That's the world's opinion. And on and on, the world's opinions go. But the world, you got to understand, our sin nature, which is in agreement with the world, is constantly trying to mold us into its pattern. To eliminate any righteous standards um, that might conflict with it. But the Holy Spirit of Jesus is 
conforming us to a different image, isn't he? The image of Christ. It says, do not be conformed in Romans 12, but be transformed to the image of Christ. We just read it this morning from 1 Peter. It says here in our confession of sin, (coughs) as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. So the world has a desire to influence how you think, how you live, the decisions you make. And it does everything it can to keep everybody living the same way in the world. So there's no standard of objection. The world doesn't want anyone exposing sinful inclination. When we stand up for what the Bible says, what God teaches, what he commands, uh, that exposes the sin and error of our world and that's not met with kindness. Try it someday (laughs) with anyone and you'll be met with ridicule, rejection, sometimes outright persecution. Friends, this is why we we, uh, encourage membership at this church. Uh, You may be attending here and you're welcome to attend here as long as you'd like and not be a member, but we want to encourage you to become a member for for this reason, so that you can join with us in helping one another conform to the image of Christ. You have the freedom, if you're a member in this church, to come talk to me anytime you see something in my life that doesn't conform to the image of Christ. And if you're a member, you've given me that privilege also, or that right. And we need to take each other up on it for the glory of God and for our joy, our happiness. When we sign the membership covenant and membership paperwork, we acknowledge and agree to that. And here's why it's important. You won't do that on your own. <laughs> you'll, take, you'll take Saul's route if, if you're given the chance. Not because you're such a horrible person. It's because you're a human being. You will take the, the, the easiest route to dealing with your sin instead of the, the most beneficial route, which David took. And so we want as members, as committed Christians in one another's lives, help each other become like Christ. That's what membership is about here. It's not about voting. It's not about any kind of, I mean, you, you get no free tickets to anything being members here. So we want you fixed on Christ. I want to be fixed on Christ, and you're going to have to help me do that. Um, Are your eyes fixed on him? Or are you quick to ignore the ones that make you uncomfortable? The next characteristic or resolution of the happy and growing Christian is found in verse 7. Look what it says. I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules. I will praise you with an upright heart. Uh, the resolution I wrote is I will trust that God's commands are for my good. I'll have an upright heart about this whole thing. I truly believe that what God's saying is for my good. I'm not faking it. I really believe that. I don't always do it, but I truly believe it. And here's what's underlying that resolution. A belief that God is good. I believe that God's commands are for my good because I believe God is good. Right? Does that make sense? 
If I'm going to find happiness and contentment, peace, fulfillment, I actually need to believe and trust that God's commands are for my good and that he is good. If I do not believe that, I will never give myself fully to obedience. Throughout Scripture, we find that God is telling us that his commands and requirements for us are for our good and our benefit. In a promise to Israel, we see this principle in God. Jeremiah 29, 11, you probably know it well. This is, this is a command to Israel, but I want you to see the nature of God in it. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Friends, this is God's heart for his people. He is good and wants our good. He, he wants his creation to enjoy him. He wants his creation to enjoy their existence. He did not create us to torture us, to watch us squirm under the weight of his commands. His commands are given to protect us from harm and lead us to happiness. In a similar way that, that God instructs us, we instruct our children. Isn't it true? For their good, we tell them things like, hey, don't play with fire. Don't stick the screwdriver in the receptacle. Uh, by the way, look before you cross the street. Is anybody that hears those commands from parent to child going to accuse the parent of abuse? Absolutely not. They will realize real quickly that that parent loves that child. They, they do not want a scalded child who gets run over by trucks. And so we tell them, hey, don't play with fire and stay out of the road. Don't, don't play on the road. Look before you cross. Those are loving commands. The Psalms are full of the record of God's goodness towards his people. With just a short survey, we can see that he's faithful, kind, generous, exercises steadfast love, and so forth. And if we're going to be happy, growing Christians, our obedience to God must be based on our conviction of his goodness, not fear of his judgment. Fear of his judgment will last a while. A conviction that he is good will last an eternity. The final characteristic or resolution that we see in verse 8 of the happy growing Christian is this, I will depend on God's strength to follow through. You see that in verse 8? I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. What a prayer that is. I need your help is what the psalmist is saying. I want to remind you that we are discussing the path to happiness through consistent obedient living. We are not discussing our acceptance with God through obedient living. That's an important distinction. The only way that we will be acceptable to God, as you know, is not through our meticulous and intentional obedience, but through the meticulous and intentional obedience of Christ, our Savior. He is the perfect one. Our, our best attempts always fall short, but his perfection is freely credited to the account of anyone who will come, come to him humbly by faith and embrace him and trust his work done for them. Have you done that? Have you embraced the work of Christ on your behalf? Or are you still, in, still trying to impress God with your good works? Are you still confused about that a little bit? That you have to earn his favor 
You have to gain merit points by being a good person and then God, are you still confused about that? You shouldn't be. If you are, come one more week. Friends, these are two different conversations. Um, our, Our attempts at gaining God's favor through merit will never do. And it's actually a deeper offense to God than the outright sin that you're trying to avoid. You see, God has offered to us the only way of justification, the only way of salvation in his son Jesus Christ's perfection. Yours is not part of the equation. So when you embrace Christ, God's gift by faith, the Holy Spirit enters your life and begins to clean up shop. Starting with the most obvious things, the things everybody around you already knows, and then working to the more remote, detailed things in your life that are more hidden, that maybe you don't even know about yet. That's how the Holy Spirit works. He, he comes in after, after a, an exercise of faith and starts to clean up. And, it, and it's in the cleanup process that we join him. Not in the saving part, not in the coming part, but in the cleanup we join him in that. We pursue obedience and, and a consistent obedience. We're not selective, uh, or at least we try not to be. Um, God does a work in us. And this is a lifelong pursuit of victory and failure and different levels of that. And the only way that we're going to be able to keep God's statues is if we possess the Holy Spirit and the spiritual strength that he supplies in, for the battle. Paul, one who struggled with sin just like we do, said this to the Philippian church, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I can actually obey the commands of God, not selectively but wholly by the work of the Spirit in my life. That's what Paul said. That is Paul's only hope. That is your only hope. That's the psalmist's only hope. Christ must do it. Do not utterly forsake me, was his plea. Jesus said, without me, you can do nothing. Do you believe it? Friends, do you want to be a happy, growing Christian? I do. <laughs> let's, let's, let's pursue this together. We're going to need to demonstrate the presence of God in our lives by not having selective obedience, but intentional obedience. We're going to have to believe that God is good and trust that his commands are for our good. And then trust that the presence of the Holy Spirit will do his work in us and through us. Let's pray. God, we desperately want this. We want this for ourselves. We want this for our children. We want this for one another. We want to be happy, growing Christians. We want to be those who demonstrate the presence of God in our lives by obeying all of God's commands, by believing that you are good God and available to help us every minute of the day. So Father, we throw ourselves on you. Holy Spirit, we depend upon you. Do your work in us. Help our vision to be you. Help our lives to be a pursuit of you, fixed on you. God, we thank you for the promises we read 
Pray that you would do your work in us so that we could experience them firsthand. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.